Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood and it's story time. And I apologize for the lack of sound quality on this intro. Kind of had a last minute road trip this week. Um, Went back and forth as to whether we were going to do it now or do it later, but with chicanery going on and said, hey, you know what, let's just go. So I'm recording this from the hotel. Uh, every other thing I've done for this week's podcast has uh, already been recorded, except for this intro. And i got to get it done, and I forgot my mic, so sorry for the bad uh, audio quality on this one. Uh, hopefully you can deal with it. <laughs> the uh, chapter's good after this, and we'll get back to the rest of it next week. Uh, until then, enjoy. Talk to you next time. Chapter 47 Gagarin Station. Carlton parked the company car in its spot outside the hangar and turned off the engine. But instead of getting out, he sat there, staring at the building. He was not sure how long he sat there. He normally kept the chronometer function of his database turned off because he was still not used to the text perpetually hovering there in his vision. And he didn't care. He'd done his best to treat this morning like any other. He got up at the usual time, went for his morning jog, had a hearty breakfast, and drove leisurely back to the airfield just as he would, and as he always had, during any training flight. But try though he might, the butterflies were now threatening to burst out of his stomach like the alien creature in that ancient screenplay a buddy of his found way back when. This was no ordinary day. No amount of pretending would make it that way either. Up until now, it had all been fun and games. Sure, he had pulled a fast one on the company, but all that had really done was net him a few extra hours in the cockpit. Hell, that shell company, it could have been real for all Carlton knew, had even paid for the fake trial students' lessons, so it was not like it had cost Delta any money. Now, though, now the shit got real. If he got on that craft and piloted it up to Gagarin with Joe and her friends on board, that was it. Yeah, he had a cover story built into the plan. Joe had made sure of that, but even he could see it was flimsy. The NSA would see right through it. But would they be able to prove it? Carlton snorted at his own thought, the NSA did not need proof, not for something like this. There would be no arrest, no trial. That would blow the whistle on the whole thing. Most likely, he'd just vanish. And maybe Allison and the boys as well. Right then, Carlton almost started the car back up with the intention of going to the admin building and blowing the whistle on the whole damn thing. Let Joe and Malcolm fry into hell with those alien eggs. They were not his problem. But the image of Allison's face, the disapproval and contempt in her eyes when she learned what he had done, and she would, gave him pause. He had given his word to Joe, to Allison, and, damn it all, they were both right. This needed to be done. Carlton just hated being the one to do it. Sometime later, he inhaled deeply and flung the car door open, then stepped out. It was time to get it done. The pre-flight check of the craft's exterior was routine. The engine outlets, vertical stabilizers, ailerons and flaps on the wings, orbital maneuvering jets and docking apparatus were all in good shape, as expected. That much was good. Joe and her pals had at least not made much of a mess. 
Carlton smirked slightly and keyed open the crew access hatch, then waited while it opened and the boarding ladder rolled out, smooth as silk. Then he climbed up and began his check of the interior. As normal, he gave a quick sweep of the passenger compartment, empty, as to be expected on this flight, and then proceeded onto the cockpit. Settling down into the left seat, he inserted his Delta Identity card and tapped the main console, and the cockpit displays flashed to life. A quick scan showed that all was as he had left it the previous night. Fuel state was sufficient to get back to Luna, with more than the required fuel reserve, let alone to Gagarin, in accordance with his flight plan. Satisfied, Carlton tapped the console and called up the engine start procedure. He was halfway through it when he felt a hard piece of metal press against his right temple. Do exactly as I say, Joe said, her voice calm and cold. Almost as cold as the metal of the plasma pistol she held to his head. But then, Carlton had never particularly liked guns. The atmosphere outside the cockpit windows changed quickly, from a normal sky blue to navy blue and then to black as the craft propelled itself upward into the orbit. Carlton focused on that and on his instruments and tried to ignore the fact that Joe had not taken the pistol off him since she first joined him in the cockpit. Oh, she had taken it away from his temple. She had to so he could don his headset and talk to flight control. And she had settled down into the co-pilot seat, but she had kept the gun leveled on him the whole time. She had to, of course. Every aspect of the flight was recorded, from power up to power down, by recorders within the craft systems and by audio and visual recorders in the cockpit and passenger compartments. It would not do to make it look like Carlton was anything but her hostage, doing her bidding against his will, or he'd be screwed in the post-incident investigation. And there surely would be one. Concealing the fact that she had gotten up to Garen with her prize in his craft would be nigh on impossible. At least this way allowed a slim chance that he would not share in the blame. Yeah, right. Then pigs would launch themselves into orbit. You're not going to get away with this, you know that, Carlton said, trying his best to look and sound nervous, but not out of control. Security will nab you as soon as we dock. Let me worry about that, Joe growled and waggled the gun at him. She was overdoing it a bit. He rolled his eyes. Put the gun down, Joe. We both know you're not going to shoot me. She glared at him. We do? I can fly out of this crate too, you know. He snorted. When's the last time you blogged an hour in a pilot seat? Fifteen years? He glanced sidelong at her. Longer? Joe's lips compressed into a scowl and she did not respond. She also did not lower the gun. The console beeped and Carlton glanced down. The display told him what he already knew from the lack of G-forces. Orbital insertion was complete, the main engines were secured, and the orbital maneuvering thrusters were powering up. Right on schedule. The familiar feeling of freefall began to register in the pit of his stomach as the craft coasted along on its low-Earth orbit trajectory. It was strangely calming, that little bit of queasiness. Carlton had lived with it, off and on, for most of his life. It was like an old friend, in a way. This was no time to be enjoying zero-Gs, though. There was work to do, and a hostage role to play. Carlton tapped the command to execute the burn that would place them on an intercept trajectory with Gagarin Station and paused, his hand poised over the execute touch button. He turned his gaze on Joe again. This is nuts, Joe. Think about what you're doing. I haven't deviated from my flight plan. There's no need for anyone to know what's happening here. Put the gun away. We can forget the whole thing. I'll figure out a way to get you back from Luna quietly. Honest. Mum's the word. I'm not alone. Carlton dropped his jaw open, affecting surprise, but Joe spoke again before he could retort. And even if I was, we both know that what you said is not true. You're supposed to have an under-instruction. Where is he? Carlton winced and looked away. That's not really a deviation, he began, but stopped when Joe snorted loudly. Rolling his eyes, Carlton said, She got space-sick yesterday and bailed. In spite of his situation, he shook his head and snorted out a half-chuckle. You believe that? Kid never even bothered to go up but once, before signing up for orbital flight training. 
Now she's out a bunch of credits and I've wasted a lot of time. He sighed. But that's why they call them trial training flights. It separates the serious from the wannabes. He looked back at Joe and his momentary mirth fled. Don't try to deflect the subject. What do you hope to accomplish with this? Joe just continued to stare at him. She made a little gesture with her gun toward the execute touch button. Carlton sighed and hit it. The console deeped in response, and the orbital maneuvering thrusters fired for a long several seconds before cutting out. On the navigation display screen, the craft's orbital track updated to reflect its new heading toward Gagarin. Estimated time of arrival, 50 minutes. It was going to be a long flight. Every time he made an approach to Gagarin, or any of the other geosynchronous space docks, Carlton found himself unable to not stare in awe at the sheer size and complexity of the thing. A Starliner was one thing. Pericles was about two and a half kilometers long, and she was an older model, smaller than the new Gorshkov class that had started rolling off the lines while he and Allison were on Gliese the last time. But big as Starliners were, the station dwarfed them. Large enough to dock a dozen Starliners at once, with room left over for smaller private transports aplenty, and a special section for military vessels. The station was probably 40 or 50 kilometers long. The thing could easily be mistaken for a small moon, if one was not looking too carefully. A small and oddly shaped moon, though. The main living and administrative spaces were a series of six stacked rings, several kilometers in diameter, and all connected to a central hub by a like number of support struts that also served as passageways. Each pair of rings rotated slowly in opposite directions to generate Gs within the ring and null out the station's net angular momentum, just like the rings on a Starliner. From the rings, the hub stretched out in both directions, one side pointing at the Earth, the other out into space. The Earth side of the hub contained the station's reactor complex and planetary communications gear. The other side contained the docking facilities and was considerably larger. The mooring apparatus was arranged radially, with four Starliner-sized ships able to dock on each level. The arrangement was ingenious, great clamps with four passages that locked into the ships from the bow and stern, linking up with each of the four airlocks in the Starliner's rings. The clamps themselves were mounted on drives that turned them, and the rings they were attached to, in order to generate Gs within the ships and the transition area on the station. That made loading and unloading cargo and personnel significantly easier. Looking up as they approached, Carlton could make out a number of Starliners moored there. The sight made him heartsick for a moment. He loved his life and his job planet side, but there was something about just blasting away to see what lay out there, among the stars. What the hell are you thinking? Carlton glanced over to the cockpit seat, where Joe sat. She was no longer watching his every move, but she still had the pistol pointed squarely at him. She was good at this. He almost forgot for a moment that it was all just an act. At least for her part. The closer they came to Gagarin, though, the more it felt like he really was the prisoner, the hostage. He had been roped into this by her. By Allison. And they did have a point, but damn it, it was so much to risk. After this, he may as well dream of flying using his own two arms as ever think about seriously getting back aboard a Starliner or doing anything at all that did not involve the inside of a prison cell, if he was lucky. You gave your word. And that was why he had even blasted off with Joe aboard. But now, just moments away from the intercept point where station control would take over and guide the craft into its designated docking bay, that suddenly did not seem like a good enough reason. Allison's thinking with her heart. You need to think with your head. For both of us. He hated thinking what he was thinking. But it was the only thing that made sense. Carlton glanced at Joe again. She was looking upwards and to the right. He followed her gaze and saw a lone starliner docked on level three of the mooring rings. Agrippa, he was sure. She was distracted. It was now or never. 
The craft's transponder controls were to his left, from Joe's perspective behind the control stick. Slowly, so as to not draw her attention with an obvious movement, he moved his hand from the stick to the controls. Carlton swallowed, hesitated. Either way, there's no going back after this one. Drawing a quick breath, he changed the code entered into the transponder from 2570, which is what the traffic control had assigned him, to 7500. His craft had officially been hijacked. Chapter 48 Welcome Wagon The craft rotated 90 degrees and Joe had to brace herself for a moment against the sudden acceleration. There was always the worst part, the final docking. Station Control's guidance systems were always more jerky than when a pilot was running things himself, or even when the onboard autopilot handled ship's guidance. Someone must have left out consideration for the crew and passengers when he designed that algorithm. No doubt that designer had never been on a small transport craft, or cared about much except getting the code completed ahead of schedule so he could get the bonus stipulated in his contract. Definitely a government operation. Beside her in the cockpit, Carl winced as the thrusters fired to arrest the craft's rotation. Hate this part, he muttered. Joe worked hard to keep an amused grin from her face. Shut up, she said. She still had to be in character, for his safety. Carl shot her a withering glance. He was good at this game. Too bad they would never be able to sit down over a drink and reminisce over this one. It would have been a good story to tell. The craft lurched as the docking apparatus locked on from above. Then the only sensation was that of a small forward acceleration as the mechanism overhead began to pull them into the waiting hangar bay. Unlike larger ships, which could not be accommodated in a bay, orbital transport craft like Carl's were always docked within one of hundreds of bays in the station's administrative support rings. It made onload and offload easier, with G's in place and an atmosphere to breathe. It also made for less of a jarring transition for the planet-bound who traveled to and from the surface of the planet below. For the purpose of this trip, their hangar bay assignment was ideal, number 657 on the uppermost ring, closest to the Starliner mooring facilities. The less real estate she and her team had to cross with the incubator, even bundled up so as to look like just another piece of cargo, the less chance they would be waylaid. The craft came to an abrupt halt, and a humming sound reverberated through the hull as the hangar bay's doors slid shut behind them. Then came a louder hiss as atmosphere, not earth normal, but breathable for a good long time without bad side effects, flooded into the bay. Then the craft slowly lowered to the bay floor, and the grapple released them and retracted into the docking mechanism proper, where it remained housed in the ceiling directly over the craft. Well, Carl said, eyeing her with thinly veiled contempt, we're here. Joe frowned and shook her head, but kept the pistol pointed at him. Sorry it had to be this way, Carl, she said. In truth, there was no other way to have it, not without jeopardizing his safety, but she hated having their last interaction play out this way, feigned or no. Because it would be their last interaction, ever. Whether she was successful or not, whether she got the eggs onto Agrippa and away, whether the aliens killed her or not, whether she returned victorious to Earth, he would not be alive to see it. Joe found herself biting back preemptive tears for the loss of such a dear friend. Carlton's only reply was a cynical smirk. Joe waggled the pistol at him. You first. He complied, getting up from his seat and leading the way back into the small passage between the cockpit and the passenger compartment, where the crew access hatch allowed ingress and egress. Past his shoulder, Thomas, Grant, and Malcolm were on their feet at the front of the passenger compartment, waiting to get moving. Carlton feigned shock at Malcolm's presence. Malcolm, he gasped, pow! Why? He looked between Joe and the once-dead man and managed to look convincingly dumbfounded. She never knew he was such a good actor. It's a long story, Carl, Joe said. Hey, we don't have time for it. Open the hatch, then I must apologize, but we're going to have to tie you up and leave you here. 
Carl reached out and activated the hatch controls at Joe's command, but froze at the mention of tying him up. He'd been frowning for most of the last hour. Now he was really frowning. Carl shook his head, but before he could say anything, Grant sprang at him from behind. In seconds, the brawny Aussie had Carl pinned to the floor. Less than a minute later, Carl was back on his feet, his hands bound behind him with zip ties. He worked his jaw slowly, his frown now an all-out scowl. I'm sorry, Joe, he said softly. That took her by surprise. What did he have to be sorry for? A moment later, she found out. Through the open access hatch, the thud of booted feet running carried, followed by a terse shout in a deep baritone. The craft is surrounded. Release the crew and come out with your hands up. The shouted command was like a smack across the face. Joe had to stop herself from cringing away from the force of it. How? She gave Carl a forceful look. The one she knew from experience would break even the hardest of space dogs from their silence. What did you do? Carl met her gaze for a moment, but that was all before turning his eyes to the floor of the craft. I tuned the transponder to the hijacking code. Son of a bitch, Thomas growled through gritted teeth. He looked ready to kill Carl right then and there. His brother looked the same, and Malcolm was not far off. Joe could sympathize, but she was in command. She had to remain cool, in control, if they could get out of this with their skins intact, let alone if they were going to accomplish the mission. Why, Carl? You're going to go free on your own way. There was no reason. His snort cut her off. He looked back up at her fiercely, his eyes narrow and burning with a deep anger. Like hell. If I didn't turn you in, they'd find out. They'd know sooner or later. Joe opened her mouth to protest. They had given him all the cover he would ever need, but he beat her to it. You're leaving, Joe. I have to live here. I'm not going to do it as a fugitive. He looked away again, but Joe could tell it was more out of defiance than from shame. I won't do that to Allison or my boys. It stung. More than that, it filled her with a fury that she had seldom felt before, and even then, not in years. But, but he was right. It was dreadfully unfair of her to ask this much of him. She could run roughshod over the law because she was leaving. Malcolm, too. Thomas, Grant, Jorgen, and Courtney, the others in the CFI. They had all volunteered, decided of their own free will to join the cause without ever having to be asked. Carl and Allison, though, they were content to live their lives in Boston and neither bother nor be bothered. Until she had imposed on them, the fact that she had no alternative did not matter. She had upset their lives, and she could not blame Carl for doing what he thought was the best for his family. She nodded slowly. I understand. The other members of her team looked at her incredulously, all except Malcolm. His expression had softened as Carl spoke, and he nodded at Joe's words. He understood as well. We're going to have to gag you, Carl, she said. He nodded. Joe looked at Grant. Do it. Don't make it too tight. The fighting man scowled and grabbed Carl by the scruff of the neck, then dragged him into the passenger compartment. The soft sound of scuffling issued for a few seconds, followed by Carl crying out, Ow! momentarily before his voice was muted by the gag. After another brief period, Grant rejoined them next to the hatch. He gave Joe a quizzical look in response to her glare. What? He'll be fine. Joe rolled her eyes. Thomas had taken up position just inside the hatch. He picked out for a moment, then hurriedly pulled his head back under cover. Half a dozen men, he reported. Looks like station security regulars, riot gear, and rifles. Malcolm frowned. The worry in his eyes mirrored Joe's own. Can you handle them? Thomas just grinned. Joe would not have believed it if she had not seen it with her own eyes. Grant and Thomas, working as one and moving with a speed and precision that she could not begin to comprehend, took down the assembled security forces with apparent ease. One moment the lawmen were ringing the craft. The next, and almost before the two flashbang grenades the brothers threw out had finished going off, they were down, unconscious. With their hands zip-tied behind their backs and the weapons gathered into a tidy pile at the base of the craft's boarding ladder. It was all Joe could do to avoid gaping like a schoolgirl. 
As it was, she was certain her jaw was going to be bruised from striking her upper chest so hard before she could get herself back under control. How the hell did you do that? Malcolm sounded breathless and as stunned as Joe was. Grant smirked. Jervis didn't set us long for our good looks. He didn't have a scratch on him, and he was not particularly attractive, at least not to Joe's taste. But right then, she could have kissed him, and his uglier brother, too. Instead, she just rolled her eyes, or she would have if she was still not looking from unconscious body to unconscious body in amazement. Thomas broke her out of it. They'll be sending backup. We need to be out of here in three minutes, or we're screwed. Right. Joe shook herself and slung her pack over her shoulder. Then, holstering the plasma pistol she had held on Carl, she darted down the boarding ladder and into the hangar bay. It was not a spectacularly large space, about 20 meters long and 30 wide, long enough to accommodate a basic orbital transport like the one Carl had picked them up in. It was nevertheless as well outfitted as the larger bulk transport carriers. Along both side walls hung fuel hoses, hoses for O2 and water replenishment, and those for sanitary pump-outs. At the front of the bay was parked a mechanized loader alongside firefighting gear, and of course there was the windowed-off control space about 5 meters up the front wall. It was fully manned, of course, and Joe could see a number of pale faces watching them with wide eyes. Three pale faces, actually. One of them, the supervisor no doubt, was obviously shouting something, but the other two just stood there as though struck dumb. And considering what Grant and Thomas had just done, Joe couldn't blame them. Finally, the supervisor shoved one of the other two and punched down, probably activating a communications circuit. He began yelling again. Joe couldn't hear him, but he was no doubt calling for help. Everything's under control here, situation normal, Grant said, his tone highly amused as he watched the supervisor's antics from Joe's side. She glanced sidelong at him, perplexed. He caught her gaze and rolled his eyes. No one remembers the classics anymore, he muttered. Then, more loudly, he pointed at the loader. Get that thing started up. Joe moved to obey and was halfway to the loader before she realized that he had given an order and she had taken it. That was not right. She was a command, not... She looked back and saw that the three men were gone, vanishing up the cargo hold to the back of Carl's craft. Of course, it made sense. They were all stronger than her. It would be difficult enough getting the incubator out of the craft with all of their muscles. If Malcolm or Thomas were driving the loader instead of her, it might be impossible. Still, it stung a bit. Whatever, there was work to do. If you've seen one loader, you've seen them all. That's what Joe always thought, and she was not disappointed with the unit in their hangar. Its controls were simplicity in itself, and it did not require a database and plant to start it, thank God. In less than a minute, she had it running. Thirty seconds later, she met the men at the bottom of the cargo ramp. Between the three of them, they could just barely lift the incubator. But it was a good thing they did not have far to go to meet her, or they would have either dropped it, or been forced to lay one end down and drag it to her. Joe had no idea how delicate the incubator's innards were. Not very, she would wager, based on how well it had kept running through the abuse the lab rats had put it through, but she knew enough about complex mechanisms to know they were designed to function at a certain attitude, and if you tipped them over or left them at a bad angle for long enough, that would cause trouble. It was a moot point now, though. After another few seconds of moaning and groaning, along with a goodly number of curses from all three men, they had the thing secured into the loader's twin arms. There was no time for the wicked to rest on their laurels, though. No sooner had they gotten the incubator squared away than Thomas and Grant hurried over to the main hatch leading into the station's innards. Malcolm paused only to pick up a pair of plasma rifles from the small pile at the bottom of the boarding ramp. He handed one to Joe and shouldered the other. They ran to follow the two brothers. Joe put the loader in gear and floored it. The damn things were not all that fast, but she easily caught up the men as they ran down the adjoining passage toward this level's central corridor. From there, it should not be too far to the access tunnel to the station's central hub, where further transport lifts would take them to mooring level 3, where Agrippa was docked. It was all coming together, 
They just needed their luck to hold out a little bit longer. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.